Amen. We're going to turn uh, to the Bible uh, and we're going to continue our series called From When the End is the Beginning, looking at the end of Luke's Gospel, the beginning of Acts. And we're going to read from uh, Acts chapter 2, uh, going to read from verse 41 to 47. Uh, the words are going to come on the screen, but see if you can spot the difference. Here we go. Which one do you think is scripture, which one's not? Those who accepted his message thought about getting baptized, and one or two were added to their number that day. Occasionally, they spent some time listening to the apostles' teaching, and when they could, they met for fellowship and for the breaking of bread and for prayer. Awe came upon some of them. However, there was no signs or wonders. All who believed were separated into groups and kept themselves apart in all they did. They would hoard their possessions and goods and show indifference to any that had need. Day by day, they went about their own lives as individuals, only meeting fortnightly in the temple. They broke bread at home alone and ate their food with cold and empty hearts, giving occasional thanks to God and having the contempt of all the people. Day by day, the church declined in influence and very few were saved. We'll revisit some of that text as we go through. Well, I wonder if you uh, are into agony aunt columns. They've kind of declined in popularity in recent days, but they're still around. And in 2014, an agony aunt column in the Denver Post caught many people's eyes on social media. In a column called Ask Amy, somebody called Sad Sister wrote this letter to the agony aunt Amy. She said, Dear Amy, every fall, that is every autumn, uh, my sister, cousins, and a cousin's sister-in-law have a weekend shopping excursion in our home city. We stay in a hotel, treat ourselves, shop for our children, and go out for lunches and dinners. It's a great time to reconnect. Now I've got a sister called Wendy, whom we do not invite. She's offended to the point of tears when she finds out that we've not invited her. My two sisters and I are very close in age, but Wendy hasn't been as close to this set of cousins as my sister and I have been through the years. We were, we're all married stay-at-home mums. Wendy's divorced, working mum with one young child. And there are several reasons we don't include her. We know that she doesn't have very much money for such an outing. And she also doesn't have many of the same interests that we do. We're all active churchgoers, while she only sporadically attends services. Plain and simple, she doesn't really fit in with us anymore. And she takes it very personally. And last year, she even came over to my house unannounced, crying, which upset my children and caused my, chi caused my husband to threaten to call the police if she didn't leave. Now she barely speaks to me and has told our relatives that I'm a horrible person, even though I've helped her in many ways. How can we get her to understand that she should perhaps find another set of friends whose lives and interests align more closely with hers, yours, sad sister? This is the response that caught social media eye. Dear sad, first, let's establish that I agree with your sister. You are a horrible person. <laughs> Obviously, you can do whatever you want and associate with or exclude whoever you want, but you don't get to do this and also blame the person you're excluding for not fitting in. 
The only way your sister would ever fit in would be for you to make room for her. You're unwilling to do that and that's your choice. But her being upset is completely justified and you'll just have to live with that. Perhaps this is something that you could ponder from your church pew because despite your regular attendance, you don't seem to have learned much. (laughs) We live in a world and a society in which we long for community. But often it is community on our terms with people we want to be in community with. And as that author Amy notes, and as many people have pointed out, the Bible has a very different picture of what community looks like. As the lead singer of Arcade Fire famously said a few years ago, what I miss about church is being forced to be in community with people that aren't the same as me. Community is wanted, and yet so difficult. We long for the kind of place that we can call home, the kind of place where we are accepted for who we are, baggage and all, a kind of place where we can belong, where we're valued and valuable, where we don't have to try and pretend to fit in, where we can be naked, not necessarily physically, but as it opening ourselves. I don't recommend it. but we can literally be open, transparent with who we are because we are in community with one another. As Kurt Vonnegut, the famous author said, the most daring thing to do with your life is to create stable communities in which the terrible disease of loneliness can be cured. Great quote. And we live in a society that has the rise of individualism where it's all about me and the choices I want to make and what I can do with my life. We long in that context to find the the sense of community where I'm not judged, where I am accepted, where people have got my back and I'm able to be able to provide somebody else's support too. We're a culture that longs for community, but are we willing to actually be a part of community. Well, as we've been exploring the end of Luke's gospel and the beginning of Acts, we've seen a fledgling community begin to emerge of people who started out terrified, not not having the faintest idea what was happening as Jesus, their master, is murdered. And then even more astonishingly, he comes back to life. And then he promises the gift of his spirit when he returns to be with his father. And then last week, if you were here, we saw this amazing moment where God pours out his spirit on so many different kinds of people. And as a result today, you have this emerging community that begins to take place that goes on to change the world. And of course, it is communities fledgling, weak, vulnerable, transparent, broken communities that change the world. As Margaret Mead said, never doubt that a small committed group of people can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And so what does that kind of community look like? Here we are, we're a church that wants to make a difference in our city. We want to help our city thrive. So what kind of community makes that sort of difference. Well, there's three ways, I think, from the real scripture that I think this kind of community looks like. Three perspectives on it. And the first is this. It is a community that is devoted to Jesus. 
excuse me, in my weak voice this morning. <clears throat> Verse 42, we read these words. Well, you read it on the screen. They devoted themselves to various different things. And that word devoted is a strong word. If you were to look at the original language, it means something like this. It has nuances of being married, committed, stuck together with these things, with these people. They are glued to Jesus. And not only are they stuck together to all these things that represents their faith in Jesus, it also has a kind of onward dimension to it. Not only are they committed now, but they're devoted to keeping on going. I'm stuck together, so I'm stuck with you. So we're gonna keep on going together. And therefore, it doesn't matter if you think you've got yourself sorted, you've got a whole rest of your lifetime to keep on going, keeping on being devoted. It's an onward trajectory. And they're devoted, stuck together to Jesus, which literally means because they're stuck together, they can't separate without lasting damage. And their devotion to Jesus looks in different ways. Firstly, they're devoted to truth. Let me read it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What we now have in the Bible. Now, we live in a society in which the Bible is often held up as high regard as being valuable, good piece of literature. But in many respects, the way we use the Bible is interesting. Now, I want you to imagine that this book was the Bible. I think this is the way we use the Bible, and in many respects, this is the way some of us who are Christians use the Bible. This is the Bible, and we're like this. We are the ones who are over the Bible. We're the ones who have authority with it, and therefore, we can pick and choose the bits we like. We can choose to dismiss the bits we find difficult, we can reinterpret, reimagine the bits that we're not sure about because, of course, we are over the Bible. And so rather than us immersing ourselves in it to find out what the Bible really says and then trying to apply it in our frailty and weakness, actually we get to conduct it how we want to do. Can I suggest being devoted to the apostles' teaching, being devoted to the scriptures is not living like this, but is actually living like this. I won't try and balance what I have done it. Where the scriptures are in authority are over us. And therefore, if there's questions that we have, go there. Burrow in rather than dismiss. And if there's bits that we don't understand, maybe, just maybe, the scriptures are questioning us. Maybe, just maybe, the scriptures might have to something to say. And chances are, if God is God, and this is his word, he will have some things to say for all of our lives that will need to change, as they have down through history and will continue to do so. So being devoted to the scriptures means an onward direction. Even though there's so much I don't get now, I'm gonna keep on trying to work out what on earth it says and how that applies to my life now. Uh, let me suggest what this might mean. It might be that you're here and you're not sure whether you're a follower of Jesus or you are, but you're kind of at the early stages. There's loads of stuff you know you don't know. 
To be honest, a lot of it doesn't make sense. Even some of the words in the Bible, you just say, what on earth do they mean? And so in a gathering like this, you look around you and think, boy, I'm never gonna be like them. Those guys are the uber, super holy ones. Boy, I'm never gonna be like them. And it kind of crushes you. Well, can I encourage you? Being devoted to Jesus, being devoted to the scriptures literally means, well, I've got a whole lifetime to explore then. Don't worry what you don't know now. You've got a lifetime ahead of you. Go for it. But also, for those of us who've been Christians for a while and we would think of ourselves as fairly mature in age or whatever, you can wear that if it fits, but we're the ones that we look around a room like this and we think, yeah, I've got stuff to teach these guys. Being devoted to the scriptures means we are not the ultimate teacher, God is, and so therefore are we resting on what we already know or we are immersed in what God has to say to us right now? Are we followers as well as leaders? I remember a few years ago, a friend of mine had become a Christian and he was at an event where a guy called John Stott was speaking. Now, I don't know if you know the name of John Stott. John Stott was quite a well-known Christian leader in the 20th century. Had a massive influence in, in England, Europe, and actually around the world in many respects. Google him if, you, if you've never heard of him. A friend of mine had just become a Christian. He went to an event where John Stott was speaking. And straight away after the talk, a queue appeared to try and speak to John Stott after the talk. My mate was in a queue and eventually got to John Stott. And the opening words my friend said to John Stott was, excuse me, I disagree with something you said. Here was John Stott's reaction. He said, thank you. Because everybody else had been queuing up to say, thank you so much for all that you said. It's so wise, so helpful, brilliant. Thank you very much. And yet here was somebody, a fledgling follower of Jesus, who said, there's something I don't get. And John Stott said, everybody agrees with me. Nobody ever questions me. If you're here and you think of yourself as a pretty mature follower of Jesus, are you a follower, first and foremost, being devoted to the scriptures? But their devotion to Jesus was another way. Do you notice it? They devoted themselves to prayer. Now, if you're anything like me, you read things like that or you hear things like that and you feel a sense of burden because you think, my prayer life's nothing like that. You could hardly call it devoted. Occasional, maybe, at best. If that's you, can I encourage you that being devoted doesn't mean having it sorted, but means committed to keeping on going trying your best. And if you're somebody that struggles with prayer, can I suggest something, a way that I found helpful personally? Is if you struggle with praying your own prayers for whatever reason, life, busyness, you just don't know what to think, you're exhausted, whatever it is, why not try using prayers that other people have written or prayed? And so there's some, just there's loads around. Prayers that have been written by others with more beautiful words. Sometimes they are immensely helpful and freeing for us because we don't have to say the words. Somebody else has put them in our mouths for us. So they were devoted to prayer. Try a different way of doing it if you struggle with it. But also their devotion to Jesus was experienced in another way. Listen to verse 43. 
Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Now a better translation of what was actually written there by Luke is this. Rather than everyone was filled with awe, it could say, and fear came upon every soul. Fear. In other words, the events that were happening around this community were so unsettling to everybody, both those in the community and those outside the community, that it made them a sort of healthy, nervous. You know, that sort of, it's, it's almost dangerous in a good way. And so we get kind of, yay, jumpy miracles, woo woo. Whereas actually there was a sense of woe, not woo. Not woe as in boo, as woe. Maybe, just maybe, we can be people who pray that the things that happen in our community will be so incredible that people beyond our walls and within go, wow, God is doing something. May that be the case. And the fourth aspect of being devoted to Jesus, verse 47, they broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God together. They simply praised God with one another. That's what we do, that's what we've been doing this morning, that's why we gather together. There's a sense of building each other up and encouraging and teaching each other, isn't there? And the reality is, in our gatherings, we have a choice to make every single time we meet, whether here on a Sunday, in our group life, if we're part of those, whenever it is we meet to praise God, we have a choice. And the choice we make is, firstly, do I go? And then the second thing is, do I choose to praise even if right now I feel like doing anything else? The reality is for some of us, even coming to church on a Sunday morning right now is really exhausting. Because of the stuff going on in your world and your life, you just want to curl up. Can I encourage you, if that's you, and if there are people around you, whether around you physically or just in this community, who know what you're going through, the mere fact that you choose to come is so powerful and so beautiful. The mere fact that you choose a hallelujah in the middle of the storm makes the rest of us go, isn't Jesus amazing? Even if saying the word hallelujah is so difficult because you just wanna scream, that makes Jesus look amazing. Even if you feel far from it, even if the songs that we've been singing, you're just thinking, ah, but you choose to engage. Well done. That is being devoted to Jesus. May we be a people who choose to praise. A few years ago, I was at a wedding, uh, and this wedding was some, uh, a couple of people, obviously, uh, uh, who, uh, <laughs> who were committed Christians. And the, the wedding service was a bit like kind of our community, you know, was, the band were going for it, it was great, lots of people jumping around, great drum, you know, all this sort of stuff, great. Friends of mine were there who weren't Christians. Uh, and to be honest, they thought what was going on was bonkers. They just couldn't get it. And yet, afterwards, I spoke to one of them with tear going down his cheek. And he said to me, Tim, you guys really believe this, don't you? 
He had experienced a community of people devoted to Jesus, choosing a hallelujah, and it had a massive impact on him. May we be that kind of community that choose to engage regardless of the songs we sing, regardless of whether we feel like it, regardless of whether we'd want to be watching Glastonbury or whatever it is on telly. We choose a hallelujah. So that's the first thing. The second thing, this was a community that was devoted to each other. Let me read again. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. Fellowship and breaking of bread. And what that looks looks like is made very clear. Verse 44, all the believers were together, had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Several aspects of this each otherness. The first is they are united but not uniform. Do you notice that, verse 44? All the believers were together. Now, last week, if you were here, when we were talking about Pentecost, you'll have seen what that all the believers means. People from all over the place, all different languages, all over. In other words, they weren't the kind of people that were used to hanging out together. They were united, but they were not uniform. They were different. Which means in this gathering, it's great if people aren't the same as you. If you're thinking I don't fit in, that's church. None of us do. But we do because of Jesus. And therefore we can be in it with each other. And which of course means there's no place for imposter syndrome. Now I don't know if you've heard of imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is basically an environment where if you're in a position where you hope that nobody else finds out that you shouldn't really be there. You feel you're an imposter in it. Anyone in leadership, loads of church leaders go through it. Anyone in any position often is in a, it has imposter syndrome. Listen to these words from a journalist called Neil Gaiman. Brilliant story. Some years ago, I was lucky enough to, to get invited to a gathering of the great and good people, artists, scientists, writers, and discoverers of things. And I felt that at any moment, they would realize that I didn't really qualify to be there among these people who'd done really good things. On my second or third night there, I was standing at the back of the hall while some music was being played at the front. And I started talking to a very nice, polite, elderly gentleman about several different things, including the first name that we share. And then he pointed to the hall of people and said words to the effect, I just look at all these people and I think, what the heck am I doing here? They've made amazing things. I just went where I was sent. And I said to him, yeah, but you were the first man on the moon. (laughs) I think that counts for something. And it made, he writes, it made me feel a bit better because if Neil Armstrong felt like an imposter, maybe everybody does. So they were united but not uniform. They were also devoted by in giving, not getting. Do you notice that? All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Their focus was not on what I get out of the community, it's what I can put in to the community. And that is such a countercultural thing in our society where any product, anything, any job is about my needs, fulfilling me. And of course, that can easily jump over into church, can't it? And so therefore, we don't like the style of music or we don't like certain things or we don't read the bit that we particularly like or you know, something's, the room's too hot or dot, dot, dot. Whereas this was a community devoted to each other so they were focused on what they could input into it. 
on giving, not getting. Uh, and finally, they were devoted to each other in the way they used their homes. Their homes were used as hospitals and not castles. Let me read to you. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with a glad and sincere heart, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Did you know the word hospital, the root of it literally means home for strangers. And in many respects in our society, our houses, we're kind of viewing them as castles, where these are the walls within which I feel safe. And of course, there's a beautiful thing about home. We do feel, as Jess was singing, home, welcome, safe. And yet, this community expressed that sense of home by opening the doors to strangers and eating together, breaking bread, sharing open home. And can I rather controversially suggest a way that this might look? You can disagree afterwards. I think in our society, when we have people to our house, the way we express their welcome is by cleaning up the house. And so therefore we've got somebody coming round, we hoover the floors, we wash all the dishes, we tidy away all the underwear that's on the floor, and we make it look amazing because that's the way we present welcome to people. We want to show honor to them. Might I suggest controversially a way to extend real welcome <laughs> is by not doing that. Because then people don't go into your house and think, whoa, my house is never like this. People go in and say, wow, I feel at home here because I'm so valued that I'm part of the family. Now that doesn't mean you have to have all your underwear out and all that, <laughs> but hear the heart in it. So they were devoted to Jesus, they were devoted to each other, and finally, and very, very briefly, they were a community that was devoted to those outside the community. Do you notice that these verses are sandwiched between two verses? Verse 41 says, those who accepted Peter's message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And then verse 47, the last verse, they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. In other words, there were people outside the community who noticed. They saw what was happening in that community and wanted to know more and so then became followers of Jesus. They noticed what was happening, which of course means they've got to be in the environment. And so I guess there's a challenge for us about who are the people that we have in our sphere and what opportunity do we have to give them a glimpse of a Christian community, whether that's a small group, community group, whether it's here on a Sunday morning, which is a brilliant opportunity to invite people so that they might notice and then say, I want to know more. I love this quote I saw on Twitter uh, just the other day. It's easy to love a city or a neighborhood or a church. It's much harder to love actual people. <laughs> Might I suggest that that is a massive challenge. Who are the individual people that we have in our worlds that we might help them to notice what goes on in this community 
so that they might see something of Jesus. But not only did they notice, they also understood, didn't they? And there's something for all of us that we have an amazing opportunity to help others just understand something of why we meet together with people that are not like us. Why we get up on a Sunday morning and come out. Why we go every Thursday to meet with friends, brothers and sisters and you know, look at the Bible and pray together. Why we want to bless our community. It's because of what Jesus has done. Because what did Jesus say? Whilst they were waiting after the incredible moment where Jesus is about to go back to his father and he says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Friends, it might be that you're here this morning and you think, I don't understand who this Jesus is. I'm at the early stages of this. Can I say it's brilliant that you're here and may you know that in Christ there is freedom. And for those of us who've been following Jesus for a while now, we have an opportunity as part of this community to show something of what Jesus has done by the way we are together and by the words we speak so that others might notice and they might understand that Jesus really is for them. May we be a people who live like that for the glory of Jesus.